Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-track so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. All right, so Brody Utley, thank you for being on the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Right. Uh, you know, we normally don't talk to your type. We don't. We actually normally don't talk to musicians, mm-hmm. but you're great, um, and you've been doing some recording, and I think your band's awesome, and cool. you got a lot to say. So Thanks, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, why? 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> I don't know, man. No, but why do you do this? Like, and Oof. by this, I mean like music. What's what's the deal? Well, I mean, I guess I just don't know how to do anything else. I don't know. I, I guess that's like the the sad way to say it. But um, I don't know. I mean, started. You know, I've been playing in bands since you know I was a kid, fifteen, sixteen, and. Um, the band that I'm in now, Rivers of Nile, um, you know, we started back in like 2009 and, uh, we signed, uh, signed a record deal back in like 2012. And since then, everything's just gotten better and better, like in every way. I think that has a lot to do with why I'm still doing it because like, I see a lot of bands that, uh, sometimes maybe uh, are on a downward trajectory and, uh, members of that band might not be aware of it. And they just are kind of like holding on to the dream for maybe way too long. And uh, I'm very aware of that. And uh, I feel like with us, it's been an upward trajectory ever since we started, uh, especially ever since Metal Blade came into the picture. And um, so I think that has a lot to do with why I'm still doing it, uh, you know, because it's been just getting better and better and better, especially after the release of our new record. I mean, the tours have just gotten better. Shows have been getting bigger numbers are higher. Um, I mean, we've, on this last record we did, we were number 60 on the Billboard 200, which was first time for us. We never charted on the Billboard. So, I mean, it's just been... It's actually quite an achievement for this genre of music. Yeah, it was really, really surprising. Um, I mean, this is our third record now, and on the first two, you know, we didn't, didn't make the Billboard at all. We made like I'm not, I don't know what all the other charts are, but the main one that, you know, that I look at and that people look at is the Billboard. And, and yeah, we hit number 60 on this record, which was a huge surprise and like really, really cool. So it's just like stuff like that along the way that kind of keeps feeding the fire. I have a question about the, about the whole expiration mm-hmm. point yeah. thing. Um, it's something that I also was actually very aware of back when I was in a band was one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to get out of my band um, mm-hmm. and look for the next the next thing was because I started to feel like the expiration date had passed or was about to pass. Yeah. And I became very aware of people in bands around me who were unaware that their expiration date had passed and like it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, 
how would you know? Like, how would you know if the expiration date had passed on your band? And uh, by the way, I totally agree with you. Um, everything I know about your band has been an upwards trajectory. Like, uh, I first heard about you guys a long time ago from uh, from Ben at Metal Sucks, mm-hmm. and he told me about you guys. I didn't really check it out because whatever you know yeah you know how it is yep. you don't check out bands people tell you until they until you've heard about it like four or five times yep but like i just kept on hearing about it mm-hmm. over the period of years and then just more and more people liking it you hear about more and more tours exactly what you're saying and it's been a slow but steady progression so at this point i would say that you'd be dumb to give it up but how would you know if uh, if that expiration date had hit and it's time to it's time to get smart about the next thing? This might not be like the first and foremost thing, but I mean, I think a a pretty accurate reflection of your relevance as a band uh, comes from first week numbers. Like, for example, on I mean, on this record, like this third record that we just released, we literally did over twice what we did on our previous record, which is like, I I didn't see that coming at all. So I think album sales are like a pretty good indicator of your relevance, but that's, you know, that's not necessarily like a sure fire sign of like, oh, okay, well, you know, things are getting worse. Cause you know, you know, you've seen bands like have like dips in their careers and, you know, album sales drop and then they come back, you know, over the course of the next couple records with just like, you know, huge numbers. So, but I think for an, for a band that's still establishing themselves, yeah. like, so that's it, that it's kind of crucial. Like if a band has already established themselves and they put out like a dud record, mm-hmm. um, they have enough of a fan base and enough of an infrastructure in the business to where they'll probably get another chance. And so, uh, you know, they'll write the ship or, you know, sometimes, when a band has been around for a long time and they take an adventurous step artistically, mm-hmm. uh, their fan base may not like it at first. And it takes a little while for them to accept, you know, what they did. And sometimes those records that weren't initially huge become one of the favorites. But I think in the case of a band that's proving themselves, yeah, like if those numbers don't grow, like yeah. that's death. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, I think a perfect example of a band um, with, like, the huge career that then released a dud record and then kind of ended up coming back in, not in, like, a huge way, but definitely coming back is Opeth. I mean, they had, you know, a huge long career, you know, up until, like, 2008. Uh, Well, actually, they released Watershed in 2008, so... Then they the next record they released was that uh, Heritage record, and people were just, like, so mad about that record, you know, when it first came out. And, like, I actually like, I actually like that record a lot. Um, but, you know, people were so pissed about that record when it first came out. And then, like, over the course of the next two records, I feel like they really got back a lot of their old fans and people started to get what it was that they were doing because that new record that they did, Sorceress, I mean, I feel like I saw, I don't know what the actual numbers were on that, but I saw like a ton of hype on that record when they started releasing singles for it. So I think Opeth's a good example of a band that can have that or that has had that kind of like slump where people are just like, ah, oh, what the fuck, you know, I'm, I'm going to write this band off completely. And then they kind of made a comeback. 
Um, you know, I think that in their case, and I think they're one of the, you know, I think they're one of the best of all time. Oh, yeah. I think that they had done so many different things, uh, you know, like Damnation Deliverance mm-hmm. back in the day. And so that it was like, even if people didn't like that one record, it was is almost like, well, of course, Opeth is going to put out a record like that at some point. Yeah. Like, who wouldn't expect that to happen at some point? Like, at some point, they put out an instrumental record that's completely improvised. I don't think that would be weird either. Uh, It might not be as well received, but I think that everyone who has loved them at some point is open to the possibility that they might do something like that and then come back two years later with one of the most amazing heavy records of all time. And so like, because they've built up that trust, yeah. you know, over the years. So people will give them the, sh- the chance, even if they don't like the current record at the time. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a perfect example. Yeah. But um, as far as like a band that's establishing itself, um, I think, I think one advantage that I've had in my kind of journey as a, as a band guy is one of the other guys in my band, Adam Biggs. He's our bass player. He and I have been playing music together for, you know, 10 years or more. Like we were in other bands together before we started this band. And um, he and I have always had like a super brutally honest with one another relationship, Um, you know, like in, in every way, pretty much like whether it's songwriting or advice or whatever. And I remember you know, a couple of years ago, me and him kind of had a conversation, you know, and we said, you know, if this, if this shit isn't really happening by our third or fourth record, like we're still coming home from tours, like super hard in the negative And, you know, we're, we're bumming it like real hard and playing, you know, first of four or five on tours, you know, if, if this is, if that's how it's still going to be on our third or fourth record, then maybe we need to get real with each other and kind of just, maybe reconsider like where this whole thing is going. Um, and you know, that was years ago. And I think since then, you know, things have just continued to get better and better. Um, but I think the fact that he and I, me and Biggs are like kind of the, the two dudes in the band. I mean, I write pretty much everything, uh, musically, he does all the lyrics and then he and I handle all the business stuff. So I think the fact that like the two of us are like super aware of that whole expiration date on you know, bands really. Um, and that we're like, so honest with each other, um, really helps because like, I feel like if you have a band full of guys that are just like delusional about what this game is, uh, I think that's like, that's just bad news. Um, so I think, I think the fact that he and I are so real with each other, you know, it's kind of rubbed off on the other dudes, uh, in the band. Um, so I think everybody's like, everyone in our group is like very aware of that whole thing. You know, we're not like, live in any fantasies here. Like, I think we all understand like what this, this game is and what the signs are. Cause definitely not going to name any names, but I mean, we've definitely toured with bands that, you know, have uh, been doing what they're doing for a very long time. And some of those bands are killing it and other bands, you know, you find yourself kind of looking at each other and going like, Whoa, I can't believe that they're still doing this. And, uh, you know, we never want to be that band. So I think we're just, you know, we're real with each other and uh, we're honest with each other to the point of insult um, sometimes. And I think that even though that sounds terrible on the outside, I think it's a, it's a very beneficial 
uh, relationship. You have to be honest. Yeah. You have to be honest about everything yeah. in in life and in business. Um, yep. I mean, that doesn't mean you have to be stupid. No. But you have to look at your, like, the bottom line and the metrics that make a difference and be honest about it. I think lots of times, and this is true for bands as much as it's true for people in business and just, you know, when people are avoid going to the doctor mm -hmm. for a long time because they don't want to get that diagnosis or whatever it is. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid to look at the truth of their situation. And I think that looking at the truth of your situation is one of the ways to stay alive because um, it may not feel good while it's happening if you're dealing with something tough. Yeah. But if you're not open about it with your partners and you're not confronting it head on, that thing could, you know, it could sink your ship. So you have to, you have to, you absolutely have to. Um, and it's the same with my partners in URM. Like we are fucking brutal about what's going on yeah. with each other. Um, and sometimes what's going on is great. Sometimes what's going on is concerning, but we're always, we're always upfront about it. And because of that, uh, there hasn't been a challenge yet that we haven't been able to overcome because it's not like challenges don't happen. They certainly do happen. And as we get bigger, there's more. They're, and they're like scaling up in severity. Uh, but there hasn't been anything that like when we put our heads together and now you throw Finn into the equation, when we, you know, you put the three or four of us on a problem and we can generally solve anything. But if we were to not even bring the problem up in the first place, like, you know, who knows what the hell would happen? Yeah, no, exactly. you have to do that. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think a lot of it, a lot of that has to do with the team that you're working with. I mean, I think our team, we have a pretty good group of guys behind us. I mean, you know, we have Ben who, you know, obviously, and then, you know, yeah, he's one of the smartest guys I've met period. Yeah, he's great. And like, you know, between him and like the people at, uh, at metal blade, I mean, you know, Vince from metal blade, um, you know, he's been like one of the most like influential dudes, like on me, like I, he's like a dude that like, he's the label dude or whatever, but he like keeps it so real and like on such a like grounded level. I, I can go to that dude about anything. And I know I'm getting sound advice from him, like whether it's about the band or not. And like, you know, same thing with, um, with Ryan, uh, Bart from the Black Dahlia murder, who used to play for bass for Black Dahlia. He works at mm -hmm. Metal Blade. I know him. Yeah. He works at Metal Blade as well. And like, he's another dude that I can go to about anything, you know, whether it's, you know, business stuff or recording stuff. Cause he's obviously a super sick, uh, engineer, um, you know, or, or, you know, label stuff, I can go to him about anything. So, um, and they all, all the people that we work with are like very fucking honest. I think a big part of the reason that working with Ben has been so cool for us is because when we first met him, the first time that he saw us at a show was in this teeny tiny shithole little venue in New York City uh, called the Lit Lounge. I don't think it's open anymore, but that's where Ben actually saw us for the first time. We were on tour with uh, the Binary Code, and this is back in like 2011, I think, and Jesse, who's a mutual friend I know, 
uh, between us. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually yes. he's actually the guy that introduced us to Ben uh, because Ben was managing them at the time, and he was like, "Oh, our, our manager's coming out to the show. You know, I'll introduce you guys and all that." And um, you know, we played, and Ben, you know, we met Ben and everything, and uh, he was like, "Oh, good set, guys." And you know, then we didn't hear anything from him for I don't know, maybe six months or something like that. We weren't expecting to hear anything back from him. And uh, then he hit us up and he was, you know, he sent us an email and he was like interested in, you know, just working with us, like real like handshake agreement type thing, you know. And I think the fact that like he saw us in that environment, um, you know, just a tiny band playing to like nobody, like I think that he's kind of grown with us and like seen the growth of the band from like a very small tiny level to like where we're at now not i mean we're still a relatively small band but i mean i think the fact that he's been with us since the real shitty beginnings has really helped with our relationship with him like he's you know he's a friend he's like more than a manager i mean he's like a friend he's like the sixth band member you know i mean he's just been with us like since day one um as far as well day one meaning since around the time that we got signed. Um, and like, I think having that long relationship and, um, you know, the trust that's, that's kind of between us is super important. Cause I don't know, I feel like if, and I, you know, I could be wrong here, but I feel like, you know, sometimes like when bands already have like these established careers, these, you know, or not established careers, but when they have a back catalog, sometimes you get these managers coming in and like, they have their whole like this whole idea about how they want to restructure stuff and like they have a different vision for what the band's already kind of established and they kind of can like things can get a little fishy and deceptive um but i think the fact that like we started working with ben so early on really created this cool kind of relationship that we have with him and it's definitely super valuable because he's like you said he's like one of the smartest dudes that i know in this whole game and and having him on our team has just been super sick you know, speaking also of Bart uh, at the label, I've known him for quite a long time, and he was always a person who was just straightforward. Oh, yeah. Um, like, doesn't matter what. He's just always been straight fucking forward, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate that about a person. Yeah, definitely. And um, I've found... In, in my life, I know, you know, it's not the case for, you know, everybody, because I know a lot of dudes that kind of like to, you know, refresh their um, relationships every couple of years with people. And that's healthy, too. But I feel that like a lot of the best relationships and the best decisions that I've kind of made in my life have come from dealing with people that I've, I have a history with that I've, you know, known for for some time. Um, you know, for me personally, those have been the most helpful relationships are like long, longer standing relationships with people. You got to start somewhere. But I feel that uh, the people in my life that have been most influential in me and have helped me the most are people that I've kept around in my life. Um, and I have that history and that trust with them. So, um, you know, because it's been a little while and you guys have seen a bunch of bands some smaller, some bigger. Uh, and I'm sure by now you've definitely seen plenty of careers change. What is it that you find the the bands that are killing it have in common? Is there anything? At least from what I've seen, um, it's just, it seems like there's one or two dudes in the bands that are like really good at business and just like generally being like a normal person in social situations. Um, and, and in addition to that, (laughs) yes. Yeah. And in addition to that, having like a real good team of people behind them, um, like I feel like 
and I've, I've heard it on like other episodes of this podcast and on many other like music related podcasts, just like, you know, not being punishy um, and not being a weirdo. I feel like that, you know, being able to talk to people, being able to just act normal. Um, I think that that carries a lot of bands and individuals like way further than you would think, because uh, nobody wants to work with strange people. I guess that's what I'll, I'll say. But yeah, um, I don't know, really. Strange by music standards, too. Well, well, yeah, of course. But I mean, I don't know if there's any like one thing that I've noticed well, I don't mean one one thing, but I mean more like what are some of the characteristics you've noticed that they have in common? And I think those are good ones. Like there are people in the band who are very great at business. There are people in the band who are not complete fucking weirdos yeah. and can actually hang out and not make people around them feel uncomfortable. They have a great team around them. Yeah, I mean, just think like a couple a couple of bands that, I mean, I'm thinking of like, well, they're like some of the bigger bands um, that, you know, we've toured with actually are some of like the coolest dudes that we've toured with. Um, I mean, like bands like, you know, Whitechapel and Thy Art is Murder. I mean, we just finished a tour with Thy Art and like those dudes were so, so nice. Um, you know, just like seeing, you know, bigger bands like that, you know, some some bands get like egos and get all weird and kind of take what they're doing for granted. But all the dudes in like both of those bands, like, they still have that drive. They're still like grinding hard and they're still acting like normal fucking people. You know, there, you can sit down and have like regular people conversations with them and, uh, and it's not weird or anything. So I don't know. I feel, I feel like, um, yeah, like those guys or like revocation, another band, some of the coolest dudes that I know. I really, I, I know it sounds, it probably sounds funny to say, but like, I feel like just having like good dudes in your band that aren't fucking weirdos, like we'll, take your band way further than you'd think uh yeah it's i don't think it's i don't think it sounds funny to say that at all yeah but it's the same exact thing in the studio world and you know there's some leeway too like everybody expects that music people are going to be a little eccentric of course and so there's a little bit of you know there's a little bit of freedom there um to you know you can be an artist you can be unique it's just when it crosses over into that weirdo that makes other people feel uncomfortable on yeah. territory. Yeah. Uh, that your band has got to be really making people a lot of money for people to put up with that. I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think you got to also look at the band. Like once you're, once you're a signed band, well, you know, even before that, I guess, but like, especially once you're a signed band, you like also have to like, look at your band for like what it really is like outside of the obvious musical entity that it is you also have to be real and know that like it's a business and you have to fucking treat it like that you know so if you're out there making shot decisions you know business wise like whether it's like you know merch stuff or having like relation like burning bridges with people that you know you probably shouldn't be burning bridges with like that's really gonna hurt you a lot so i feel like also recognizing the fact that like especially this day and age like you have to treat you have to treat this like a business as well as you know a, a musical thing i think i think that's like another very important part of it because i you know i see a lot of bands out there that they're just out there you know ripping it every night getting shit faced drinking you know uh just 
kind of just like living in the moment, like, and not really like worrying about anything else. And like, you know, every band does that, you know, of course, like from time to time, but to be only that, you know, and not to like kind of think about the longevity of this whole thing. I've seen some bands that don't think of it that way. They're just like, yeah, we're on tour. Let's fucking go nuts. And that's it, you know, but like, they're not really like thinking about stuff like having like a solid, like merch uh, system or, you know, you know, web stores or, you know, engaging with their fans or like coming up with like different ideas for social media campaigns or, or whatever, you know, just, I feel like a lot of bands are just out there to like, I don't know. I feel, I feel like some bands are just out there. It's like a, it's like a frat party really. And they're not like thinking about like the other stuff that, you know, needs to go into, making a band a long-term thing. So speaking of all those things, um, tell, uh, tell me if you've ever noticed this. Hmm. Have you ever seen bands who get, who do all those things, like they check off all the boxes, um, but for some reason shit just doesn't work? Yeah. You'll see regional or like baby bands go through this where there are the two people that are serious. Yeah. Um, they have the merch, like they have all that stuff. Yeah. But something about it just doesn't, doesn't connect. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering if you've seen this in like, say local bands, like when you guys tour and you have like local openers and stuff, um, what are some of the things that you've noticed that, uh, will set one of those bands apart and make you actually pay attention to them or keep in touch with them or, yeah recommend them to somebody um well this is gonna kind of go against what i just said um but it's the other part of it that i didn't get to talk about um at the end of the day uh if your product sucks nobody's gonna want it you know what i mean yeah so like even though you know we're in the the digital age and you know things have totally shifted from how they used to be and, you know, you can spend, you know, a thousand dollars on a Facebook campaign to get likes or whatever. Like at the end of the day, it still comes back to is what your is your output is your music good? Because if it's not, people aren't going to want it no matter what. Like, man, it's the absolute same with marketing anything. Um, yeah. So we were all students of marketing. Um especially digital marketing now because, you know, we're an online company. Right. And we we collectively do a lot of studying and have done a lot of studying. And so we're part of some communities where some people try the same tactics or strategies that we've used, mm -hmm. um, not all, but some, and get zero results whatsoever. Yeah. And, like, it, they do all the right things except – for the one most important thing, which is they have, for instance, a product or a service or something that just sucks. Yeah. Um, so they'll like they'll have some sort of uh, some sort of like class or something online that they're marketing, and it's just terrible. Yeah. And it's like in a topic that nobody would pay for, and nobody gives a shit. And so they they sink the money into the marketing and they do all that stuff and nothing happens and so they don't understand why. And so they think that the places that they learn that stuff from are scamming them or mm -hmm. whatnot. But in reality, uh, what it, I think what it comes down to is that all these things that 
that you do like in a band, whether it's merch and have a team and like uh, think about engaging your fans, all that stuff, and you know the stuff that we do with our with our marketing and our Facebook ads and messenger ads and all that stuff, it will all fall flat on its face if what you're actually putting through that infrastructure isn't good. Um, like that stuff, I consider, for instance, I consider social media to just be an infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I know that lots of people I've talked to will be like, I want to start my own system and like my own site, my own this, my own that. It's like, why? You don't need to worry about any of that. There's already an infrastructure out there that's set up for you to communicate with people and it works great. It fucking works great. Yeah. What you need to do is have something to put through it that other people will actually care about. Yeah. You're, what you had said about like the local band thing, I mean, pretty perfect example with like, the, the whole local band thing as it parallels to like business ideas or, you know, band ideas or whatever is like, you know, we play with a ton of bands, you know, local bands that'll open up, you know, tour packages or whatever that they'll have, you know, the most insane, like amp rig. They'll have like dual campers for each guitar player with like in-ear monitors and wireless everything (laughs) and like a huge backdrop and stage scrims and like this insane setup. They have like tons of merch with like crazy lights and they have their own light guy and their own manager or whatever. And like, that's all good. But then when they play and it's like horrifically shot, like it doesn't matter that they had all that other shit. Like you're going to instantly forget about that band or you're not going to forget about that band. You're going to like laugh about it in the van later that night. You actually make an example out of it. Yeah, exactly. So like, I feel like early on as a band, I think having, well, not early on in general as a band, having good, good products, good music, you know, is super important. And early on, especially I think being cool and just like knowing how to talk to people is like invaluable, especially as a local band, because like all of like the sickest local bands, a lot of whom have gone on to like get signed and like do stuff that we've, you know, played with over the years. The bands that like stick in my mind are the ones that have the sick music, not necessarily the sickest gear or backdrop, uh, but the ones that have, they play great, you know, what they're doing on stage is sick, their music is good. And then at the end of the night, when they talk to you or you, you know, you talk to them or, or however it works, like that they're just cool dudes. They're not like, they're not punishy. They're not weird. Like those are the bands that stick with you. You know, the ones that have good music and they're, you know, good people. They're not like, they're not weirdos, you know, like I think as an, as a young band, that's very important. Just personal, like, like social skills, uh, you know, to a certain extent, and then having a good product as a local band is like so important. And then once you're, you know, a sign band, you need to like kind of combine that all into one in addition to your, you know, your business stuff, like your, your merch and, you know, your, your stage setup, whether it's lights or backdrop or whatever, and then combine that with having good music and being, you know, socially capable in some form or another. I feel like those three things are so important, you know, uh, especially like once you, once you get signed and you're on like the touring circuit. Yeah. But I think that, um, lots of bands will, they want to be on that level. And so they'll emulate, like you said, the, they'll have the sickest scrims and they'll have the manager and all that stuff. 
because they think that that's what real bands have. Yeah. And it is what real bands have. Mm -hmm. But they have those things when they're ready for those things. Yeah. Um, there's no point in having a manager, for instance, uh, if you're just playing local shows and exactly and you're you're still at that level it's there's no point like why i've never understood it why do why do those kinds of bands have managers it just yeah i don't i don't i don't know like it baffles me yeah it's the same like like for example i mean just within like the last six months we've started touring with like a traveling sound guy because like that's when financially it made sense for us to make that move like we can do that now like we didn't have some guy on board since day one that like we couldn't afford to like bring out with us you know traveling around with us as a sound guy just like for looks you know like when stuff makes sense like it'll happen then and that's when you like bring that stuff on board like yeah i don't i don't understand the like the local band like having a manager thing you know i think it's just silly at that level they mispro they misprioritize man. yeah exactly like it, that's exactly it it's like they don't know they need to like get the priorities straight and i mean and yeah back to the, just the original point is that you gotta have at the end of the day you, you still have to have a good product that people want whether it's music or you know whatever anything in business you you have to have something that people want because like i don't know you could have the the flashiest, you know, you could have the coolest car in the entire world, you know, with like the sickest paint job and like the nicest interior and all specked out and this and that. But if there's like no engine in it, it's not going to fucking matter. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I don't know. I feel like ha just having having a good product is like invaluable. Still, it always has been and it still is. That's the, that's the thing that'll never change. Yeah, exactly. And the definition of good is subjective, but of course. you can... You can look at it like, uh, will people will people pay for it and will people consume it? That's to me. That's the definition of good in this particular in this particular situation. Um, mm -hmm. Will people care? Exactly. Uh, and if so, then it's good. And if so, then you can you can hope to evolve. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. 
It's over 40 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. Um, you know, it's interesting. So there's, uh, I know you know who Archspire is. I just heard yeah. about them recently uh, for the first time and started checking them out. Was blown away. I don't listen to that much death metal anymore, mm-hmm. but was blown away and thought it was great. Uh, and then it turns out that lots of people like them in the underground and they're picking up a lot of steam and they're a badass band and mm-hmm. The business people that work with them love them and all that stuff. Yeah. But I wouldn't have even found out that, like, I wouldn't have taken it to the point of being like, okay, is this even, is this a real band? Like, (laughs) it's got to be, like, this is too good. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't have even taken the step to figure out what they were even all about as an entity Mm -hmm. if I hadn't listened to their music and been like, all right. Yeah. This is sick. Yeah. Uh, there, it has to start there. Absolutely. Always. Yeah. Um, and you're right. It always has. And I think it always will. The one thing that I also tell people in bands, uh, especially the punishy types, mm-hmm. I, I actually try to not respond to the punishy types much anymore. Yeah. Because they tend to not understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, if you're like, dude, stop spamming me, they'll be like, yeah, but your company does it. It's like, well, dude, <laughs> yes, because you signed up for it. Yeah. Uh, you signed up to a list. Of yeah. course, you're hearing from us. It's totally different. Yeah. Uh, you're sending me your music 15 times a day, seven days a week, and I never even asked for it. And I know that you're doing it to a bunch of other people. And you try to talk to them about that, and they think that you're like shooting them down or something like that. It's like, no, dude, I'm trying to help you. Uh, yeah. Trying to help you not get shut down by everybody around you, and you're not, and you're taking this as an attack. Yeah. So, like, I've gotten that response a lot. And so I kind of, I kind of stopped. Talking to the punishy types, Mm because it is actually quite punishing. Yeah. But the thing that I used to say and that I will say on the podcast is think about how you discover music. Like, what does it take for you to actually become the fan of a band? And so I thought about what does it take for me to become the fan of a band? And it, it usually follows the same the same pattern usually someone will tell me about a band and i won't listen yep and then i'll hear about it again maybe a year later and i won't listen and then i'll hear about it 6 months later because a few people that i know are talking about it and then i've seen some posts about it and then maybe i'll remember that the band exists yeah and 6 months later uh someone will someone i know real real well mm-hmm. will finally bring it up. I'll have heard about it enough mm-hmm. to where I'm like, okay, I'm going to check this out. And then that whole process starts. Yeah. Um, and if it catches me, then I will personally go looking for their material. Like if I like what I hear, uh, I'll notice that I listen to an entire YouTube playlist mm-hmm. um, and I'll listen to it again. And then I'll get curious about it. I'll go looking 
and notice that they have albums out or they're on tour or whatever. It always goes through that. It, I don't need to get spammed with anything. I don't need to get hit up 15 times a day. Uh, the band just needs to be out there mm-hmm. and need to be converting people little by little to where I hear about it enough from different people over time that I'm willing to check it out of my own volition. And then if I like it, I will do the work to figure out what I can pay for and um, what what they're all about. And I feel like most fans of at least metal pretty much follow that pattern to some degree yeah, no, or another. Absolutely. I mean, I have a similar process. I mean, usually what happens is I'll see you know, Metal Sucks or Metal Injection or some website post about a band or I'll see like some ads or something from a band that's going to be releasing a record. So that's like step one. And then step two is like, if I notice that a lot of people in my Facebook feed or Instagram are sharing something from this band, that's step two. And then step three usually takes someone close to me that I respect saying like, yo, you got to check this shit out. And then that's usually when I'll go and, you know, make the jump. So yeah, I agree. It's like a whole process. Like no one, you know, no like random person being like, yo, check this out has ever gotten me to check something out. And like the funny thing about, you know, people that spam you, especially in this industry is that like people think that like, people don't talk and people aren't aware of like who the, you know, chronic punishers are, but like people do talk and people are very aware. And like, that's something that, you know, I feel like maybe if some of these people knew that like, you know, you know, people in the industry do talk to one another and, you know, there is like kind of a string of information that happens, like maybe they wouldn't do it so much or maybe they would because they don't care, but I don't know. They should care. Yeah. Um, they really should care. Uh, I, I think that anyone who wants to get their music out there should put themselves in the place of who might potentially be consuming their music and put it out there in a way that will fit how those people generally consume music. So, you know, do what the bands that they love do. Uh, Let yourself be discovered in those ways. Don't go around it because there are no there are no shortcuts nope. um and of course you're gonna hear you'll see in the comments to this or something about that one band that punished their way to the top or yeah, something of course but that's the exception yeah absolutely absolutely and like i think that another another like really good you know thing that's kind of surfaced in like the last couple of years with like the whole streaming service thing is the playlist thing i feel like for bands a, a really like good thing that can happen to bands is like if you get added to some bigger playlist on Spotify or Google Play or whatever, you know, like playlists that have 150,000 or 200,000, you know, monthly listeners or whatever. I feel like that's a really great way for bands to get heard. And I don't actually know how that approval process goes or the selection process goes for getting added to like these bigger playlists. We've had our songs added to, you know, a lot of medium to bigger size playlists on Spotify. We've had people 
get into our band just through that medium and like they'll tell us about it too they'll be like i had no idea who your band was but i was on you know this spotify playlist or whatever and you know it popped up and i was immediately hooked so i feel like this that's, is that's how i actually um actually heard your band oh, okay um because it wasn't it wasn't when ben sent it to me yeah. just being honest like mm-hmm. the like i said the first time people send me shit i generally don't check it out um yeah. but I was on a YouTube playlist checking out something else that I really liked yeah. and coming up next was rivers of Nile. Yeah. So I just let it play. Yeah. I was like, okay, I've heard about them enough. I know Brody online, mm-hmm. like may as well check it out. Yeah. That's a big, I, that's I like, liked it. Good. I'm glad that's a, that's a, you know, that's a big thing, man. The playlist generation, really. I mean, I personally, you know, like my, my parents are, were a little older, you know, um, and my dad was like a big prog rock guy, you know, like big 60s and 70s music guy. So like I grew up around a dad who like very much pushed like the idea of like concept records on me and like listening to stuff straight through from beginning to end. So in certain respects, I am still like that. Um, but I do see the, there, there is a magic to that. Yeah, of course. You know, like if I hear the wall from Pink Floyd in like sections, it doesn't hit you as hard as like, if you were to listen to that whole thing straight through, but I do see the value in the whole playlist thing, because like, I don't know, it, it's definitely like an important thing nowadays with like people's short attention spans, you know, especially like, I feel like the whole playlist thing is a very useful tool that more bands should probably become aware of and try to like get involved with in whatever they, way they can. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, um, and I know that this sounds cliche, but people should really like it. take heed. The way that people consume music is vastly different than it ever was, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that's not talked about that much, but it's been my opinion for ages now. Um, so one of the things that inspired me to start URM was I think that the consciousness has shifted to where people are more interested in making music and learning how to make music than they've ever been. And so it's not that they're not interested in other people's music. It's just that they don't have the same kind of brain ram for other people's music as they once did. And so therefore the way that they consume it, the amount of time that they'll spend on it is not what it used to be like it's just i mean i totally come from listening to albums from start to finish i've made albums that are supposed to be listened to to from start to finish and i totally fucking get it mm-hmm. but even me the way i consume music is a hundred percent different than it ever used to be and part of it is convenience of course mm-hmm. you evolve with technology but i really really think that uh the barrier to entry for starting your own music now or studio or whatever is so different than it's ever been in the past that just, you know, people are more interested in that. And again, it doesn't mean that they're not interested in other people's music. It doesn't mean that they're going to stop being interested in other people's music. But whereas once upon a time, making your own music was only for a chosen few. And it was really tough to start a band and really tough to go to the studio it's not tough to do that anymore. It's tough to be good, of course, yeah. but it's not tough to just get started. So just the fact that people can get started will divert, you know, if you only have 100% of your attention to devote to something. Yeah. Um, and something new came in that's, 
you know, that you have passion for and takes time and skill, like learning how to make music, you're going to buy, you know, just by math, have less attention to devote to other people's music. So that's why it's that much more important for people who make the music for other people to consume to take into consideration and really respect how people are taking it in. Um, Punishers, listen. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I totally, I totally agree. And uh, I think that it's kind of funny because like along with the whole playlist generation and like the short attention span thing, you also have like this recent resurgence of uh, vinyl. Like I think I read somewhere that like physical sales, um, this is like, like this past year is like one of the best years for physical sales of music or or maybe they even like matched digital sales um, this past year. I can't remember what the statistic was, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was a good thing for like physical music. And I thought that that was pretty interesting because you have this like one mentality where it's like super low attention span and like you want that like instant fix, like playlist generation kind of thing. But then you also have this comeback of like vinyl and people are buying more vinyl, you know, now than they have in like the last I don't know, 15 years, 20 years or whatever. Um, and I think-, I think it's a different process though. It's, uh, I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think that vinyl is conducive to discovery. Mm-mm. It's conducive. It sounds great. Yeah. Um, so it's like, if you really love a band uh, who has a style that like sounds great on vinyl yeah. and, uh, and you like physical objects, yeah. That's important too, because I hate physical objects. But yeah. um, if you if those things line up, like you're a fan of bands that sound good on vinyl, you like physical objects, like to collect things, it all lines up. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense because the vinyl is better than CDs. Mm-hmm. Like it's way cooler. Yeah. In so many ways. Um, so it makes perfect sense. But I don't think that that's necessarily the best discovery medium. It's definitely a great uh it's a great like long-term yeah, fan it, medium it's like a re- sense. it's like a reinforcement thing like i feel like like someone yeah. someone would could like discover a band through a playlist and then if they like that band enough they'll go out and buy you know a record and then having that record from that band and having that tactile experience of taking the vinyl out of the sleeve and putting it down on the table and putting the needle down on the record it kind of like reinforces this relationship that you have with your fans and it makes it like very much like a like a physical like you have that like physical relationship there then with like people like having your music in their hands and having this whole kind of like ritualistic thing um to listen to your music so i feel like hooking fans with like playlists or something quick like that and then you know fans going out and getting your music on vinyl it kind of makes for like really, really strong, uh, like, like long-term fans, you know what I mean? Like, cause having that, having that like ritual of putting, putting the vinyl on it, like really like has this it establishes this like special connection between a band and its fans. Um, so yeah, well, I, it's, it's not just bands, man. Uh, I think that the, it, what's happening is it becomes real in somebody's li- life. So basically I think that even though digital has evolved mm-hmm. um, to be what it is, and it's amazing, our brain has not necessarily evolved to 100% understand digital objects as being real. Right. Um, we consume them and we love them, mm-hmm. but uh, I think that our 
our programming, uh, you know, our programming inside our heads uh, is still wired for physical things. Um, and so we do our own version of that too. Uh, even though we're an online school, like mm -hmm. when people, uh, you know, we have those meetups all over the world. Yeah. Whenever we can, we send uh, mugs, mouse pads, USB drives. Yeah. Um, just so people have something real from us. That's why we do our summit, so that there's a physical, real life experience that takes all this digital shit and makes it reality. Yeah, that's smart. That's really smart. Well, not I just realized that not everyone's like me. I'm perfectly fine with all my books being on a device yeah. and not owning a single album or, you know, movie or whatever in physical form. Uh, I got rid of all my shit. Like, I seriously have, like, three physical books where I live. Yeah. I used to have lots. I used to have tons of CDs and vinyls and movie, all that stuff. And like, dude, I have none of that shit anymore. And I couldn't be happier with that. But I realized that not everyone's like that. In fact, most people are not. Most people still want physical things. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that maybe the fact that like, um, I mean, I'm 27. And like, I kind of like, I finished high school, like before, like the whole smartphone era sort of took over. So like, I kind of existed in an era and you definitely existed in an era when, you know, when you were like a teenager where like you had to have all that stuff in a physical form in order to have it at all. And I think yes. maybe the reason that you're totally cool with not having it anymore is because you realize like how much fucking space that shit takes up. And like the fact that there's this like amazing invention that, you know, allows you to not have to have that shit take up all that space is like really sick. And you're like totally for that. But then you have these kids. I love it. Yeah. But then you have these kids that, you know, they've ex only existed in a world where everything has been, you know, digital formats and, you know, for them to have a physical thing is like, a new experience and it makes the whole digital thing, the, the digital realm, you know, more, you know, having that tactile thing to like hold in your hand, like it, it makes it more real for them. So I feel like the fact that like, like I said, that kids, there are people out there that have only existed in like the age of the smartphone and the internet versus people that came from before that when like we realized that having a whole bunch of shit that takes up space kind of sucks you know? So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's like having, having like that little physical reminder, you know, that like, this is real, like sending out, like you said, like mouse pads and USB sticks and stuff like that, or like for a band, like vinyl records, you know, like, I feel like that does take things from the digital domain and say like, Hey, this is actually real, you know, which like people on the internet who, talk all kinds of shit on, you know, the internet when it comes to like real life confrontations, like they're probably going to be the guys that are just standing there with their mouth shut because they're like, oh, wait, this is real. You know what I mean? They're, they're <laughs> actually usually really nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. But anyway. <laughs> no, that's actually a great point, though. Um, the digital medium, because it doesn't feel like real life a mm -hmm. lot. Yeah. Uh, I think that's why you do see the the just total cesspool of negativity oh, yeah. online because it's not uh, I know that for a long time there was this idea out there that everybody who 
talked shit and said the worst things online was a 14-year-old pimple-faced virgin mm-hmm. or a 28-year-old pimple-faced virgin yeah. <laughs> that lived in his mom's basement and had no friends. And I just don't think that's true. No. I think it's everybody. Yeah, it's everybody. Uh, well, not everybody, but it's it's kind of like online dating. There was a time period when it was for weirdos only. Mm-hmm. Now everybody has Tinder. Uh, it's just everybody's on the internet. Yeah. So everybody does it. Uh, same with the whole talking shit thing. It's everybody you know. It's people in the industry going by aliases. Oh, it's yeah. heads of label. It's fucking managers. It's dudes in other bands. And it's also a bunch of people who you are not in the industry just talking shit who don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And so then you meet one of these people in real life. They realize you're a real person um, and you actually engage them on whatever point they had, but like in a respectful way uh, and an intelligent way. And that usually makes them do a 180. It's funny how it works. Yeah, I kind of have, it's not really related to, the online thing, but like with, uh, like for text messaging or messaging in general, when I'm like texting somebody, um, and like, say they like, don't get back to me for like a really long time or like at all, I start like building all of these like really nasty things in my brain about like, you know, about that person or like what they think of me (laughs) or this or that. But then when I see them in person, like I'm, I see them in real life. I'm like, Oh, well, they're just another person. And like, they have their own life and their own set of problems. And like, I'm a total fucking idiot for getting upset about any of this, you know? And so I feel like, yeah, sometimes like when you have that like physical connection and like the real life, hello, this is the real world. It kind of puts to rest, like any of the digital, like bullshit that you might've fabricated in your brain, or at least for me. I don't know. (laughs) I think that that's totally normal. The way that I started to get over that, because I think everybody, everybody feels that, um, again, it's just the way that things have changed. Um, and our brains haven't evolved to accept them or to, they just haven't evolved to, um, on the same pace. Uh, I started to think about when do I not respond to texts? Yep. And sometimes it is because I'm ignoring somebody yeah. or don't want to talk to them, but that's oh. not most of the time, actually. Right. That's actually the minority of the time. Usually it's because I'm doing something. Yeah. Or just they got buried. Exactly. Or I responded in my head mm-hmm. <laughs> and just didn't respond in real life, but like, in my head, it registered like I I read a text and I was like, "That's a great idea," and just like for some whatever reason, just kept on doing what I was doing, and in my head, the the box was checked off, yeah. So I just never responded. Uh, it's just like a dumb thing on my part, yeah. But it could be any one of those things or more things. It's not. It's not usually something like God, this person. Hmm. Fuck. No, totally. Like I get all. I mean, being that I'm, you know, I'm in a touring band, a lot of my friends are in touring bands and like, I get, I do this thing where like, I'll, I'll message like one of my friends when they're on tour and I won't hear back from them and I'll get all angry. I'll be like, what the fuck? They're just on tour. They're just like, they're just screwing around (laughs) and sitting in a van. But then when I go on tour, my like message list and my email list is just like a mile long because like, 
when you're out there like on tour, you actually, I know it's nice to think that you're just sitting in a van all day, but you're like, there's always stuff going on. And it's like, it's not that easy to just like respond to everyone as soon as they answer you. So it's funny. It's just like a stupid double standard thing, I guess that like, that I've kind of developed, but I'm, I'm learning to not be that way as much because I know it's foolish and like totally juvenile. Well, it's not, I don't think it's juvenile. I think it's totally natural. Mm. Um, It's just disconnected from reality. Um, It's kind of like the same way that when people don't pay attention to how uh, the the process works for discovering new music and they think that they can somehow shortcut it by spamming you. And if they would just think about how it really works, Mm -hmm. they'd probably be much smarter about it. But I, I think it's, it's not that these people are juvenile or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's they really just want it to work and they think it will. And in their head, it makes sense. And I know that these stories that we tell ourselves when texts don't come back, mm-hmm. like they make sense. Like I'd done it too. You invent a whole fucking narrative yeah. and it, you can, whatever evidence you want to attribute to it. Uh, to make it seem true, you will find that evidence. Yeah. Um, and it'll seem totally real. And it's just usually not. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think uh should have a thing where like every six months you just meet up with everybody in your phone book that you actually like and you just give them a high five to like, you know, reestablish <laughs> it. Like, hey, we're all real people here. You know, there's no need to come up with weird narratives in your head about why you're ignoring my texts. <laughs> if only it were actually possible to yeah. meet up with everybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, Probably a nightmare, actually. Like some like really like messed up Larry David type scenario, just horrible social anxiety. And, you know, nothing would get done if everyone in your phone book met up at once. <laughs> well, I feel like it would take a year just to go through meeting up with everybody once a year. Yeah, no, yeah. Maybe it's a bad idea, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's actually what's good about um, things like the NAMM show. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I don't always go because it's really, it's really kind of extreme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the amount of talking that you got to do, but yeah. it really is great for that yeah. purpose alone. Yeah, I've actually never been to NAMM, but um, everyone that I know that has gone is just it's like more of it's just a social convention more than anything i mean it's a social convention with guitars you know i mean that's and other stuff obviously but yeah i mean and symbols really loud symbols yeah (laughs) jesus yeah that whole thing so yeah but yeah i don't know i feel like having that little reminder that you know everyone has their own set of problems and their own lives you know it's like an important thing to remember so that you don't go off the deep end with like what kind of crazy shit you think people are doing to avoid you, you know? It's definitely very easy to do. Um, I want to switch topics and sure. talk about studio stuff a little bit. Yeah, let's um, do it. So I know that you have been learning how to record, mm-hmm. and I know that uh, you've worked with great people like Eric Rutan and now Carson and Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, from your perspective as an accomplished musician who is learning how to record. Um, And I'm asking this because I think that the self-recording musician is the new musician. I think that that's the way that things are going to go. And uh, there will always be like the standalone producers who will record them um, 
obviously. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that the self-recording musician is the way of the future. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that self-recording musicians are going to do their full productions. It right. just means that they know how to record yeah. to some degree. So as someone who has been recording for a little while now, you've worked with a few different producers. Um, you've made records at this point. Um, you've been through the process. What do you think uh, guys who are going into production should take into consideration when trying to win the business of somebody like you, who is, you know, I don't want to say a template, but like, you're like a good example of what the future holds is dudes who do multiple things. Yeah. Um, and have like skills at recording themselves too. So they don't necessarily have to go to the studio. Um, or maybe they could only go to the studio for certain things. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what's coming up. So, what what does it take for someone to win you over? Um, well, I mean, honestly, like the most important thing as far as like win winning me over, um, I guess, would be for. Well, I don't. I don't know what the what the right what the right phrase is. Like, no, no, I know. I totally get, know. Get booking you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Um, I think you know. First of all, I think flexibility. Um, for what an artist wants to do is very important and also having your own style like you're going to give that artist something unique like I mean anyone anyone can record well not anyone any you know a lot of people can record you know an album and you know replace all the drums with samples and make you know the guitar tones sound you know run them through an axe effects and like have everything sound perfect and all this and that but like for me personally like the producers that stand out are the guys that are doing something unique um i mean like eric rutan for example i mean he's i mean he's recorded bands that you know are just legendary i mean more he did that new morbid angel record he's done cannibal corpse he's done goat whore i hate eternal obviously um you know, I think like his, he has like a very old school style and, um, yeah, he's got, he's definitely has his own thing, which actually has evolved a lot over the years, oh, yeah. but it's still like his thing. Yeah. Like, it, you don't it, go to, you don't go to Eric Rutan if you want a Joey Sturgis mix. No, exactly. That, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like being able to offer something to a band that's unique. Like, um, you know, he, you know, he took our sound and like, put his own spin on it and and it came out sounding like totally different than you know like if we would have gone to you know like you said like like a joey sturgis or something like that um or even you know carson and grant um you know so i mean rutan has his like own style like a very like kind of uh unchained kind of like raw old school pissed sort of sound um, same with like, you know, like Kurt Ballou, like he's another dude who's like production style. Like I just fucking love, you know, it's great. Yeah, dude, like animosity. They recorded that record animal with him. Like, I don't know, 10 years ago now or whatever. And they're like, they're like a techie death metal band. And like hearing, hearing a band like that, who normally would be like, you know, a lot of tech bands like have this like really sterile, like uh, Tupperware container drum sound that's just horrible, um, you know, but hearing a band like that <laughs> in like, um, you know, done by a dude like Kurt Ballou, 
um, was so, so sick. Like that's still one of my favorite sounding records and one of my favorite records in general of all time, um, you know, because of his, I mean, because of the songs and the riffs, obviously, but like also because of like his unique kind of style that he added to it. So um, I think, I think having a style or offering something different or unique to a band is very important. And then on top of that, also being, and I mean, this is sort of, I mean, this is sort of going to depend on the producer um, and probably, you know, budget stuff and, and whatever. But I feel like being able to work with a band on their budget and like being able to work with a band on like their specific workflow is also, you know, very important. Like um, Carson, uh, Carson and Grant, you know, when I approached them, I was like, all right, well, listen, we we're going to be recording all of the guitar and the bass um, and all that, you know, well, guitar and bass on our own. I'm going to be engineering all that on my own. So I'm just going to be bringing DIs to you. Um, and then we're going to, you know, and then we would want to do like drums, vocals and mixing with you guys. And, you know, from the start, I mean, Carson was just like, yeah, sure. Of course, dude, whatever. Like we can absolutely do that. You know, whereas like I had gone to some other dudes um, that will rename nameless that we're not down with that at all. You know, they were just like, no, I, you know, I want to record, I have my own system. I want to record, you know, guitar bass. I want to do everything. Um, and, you know, just based on that fact alone that like they weren't willing to, you know, work with us on how we operate. Um, that was like, you know, a game changer for me. Like that's why, you know, working with Carson, just made so much sense on top of the fact that we already had a relationship with him. I mean, we recorded our very first EP with Carson back in 2010. Um, so like we've known him for like, like 10, more than 10 years now. So, but like, I think ha being able to, um, within reason, of course, being able to work with a band's like workflow, uh, especially if there's a dude in the band that records on his own or like has some like knowledge on like just recording in general, I feel like it's like important to like work with those dudes um, in the bands and like make sure that the band is happy with what's going on and that what you're doing is, is working for them. So I feel like really offering a unique style or offering something different to a band is very important because there's so many, so many guys out there nowadays, you know, um, you know, you have to have something that's going to like set you apart from the rest of the game. And that coupled with being flexible and working with a band, um, with how their workflow, you know, operates within reason, like I said, um, cause if you let, if you let a band run the session, that's obviously stupid. Um, and you shouldn't do that, but I think being able to, to cater to certain, to certain, uh, requests and needs with how a band is already operating is definitely an important thing. Absolutely. Um, and I didn't realize that you recorded your own guitars, but there you go. That's Exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Case in point. I, I've seen more and more of that. It just, it, it is the way things are going. So it, basically when people were like, no, my way or the highway, you're just like, all right, the highway. Yeah. I mean, essentially like that also goes along with like the fact, and I mean, this doesn't just apply to my band, but like this applies to like most bands. I mean, budgets have gotten way smaller, you know, in the last five, 10 years, I mean, for bands and like more bands are doing this kind of setup, um, where they're like, you know, doing a lot on their own and then coming into the studio. So, I mean, keeping a budget in mind, you know, because like the fact that we recorded, you know, guitar and bass on our own, I mean, that like cut like 
thousands of dollars off of the top of like what we would have paid in the studio if we would have recorded everything in the studio instead of doing it ahead of time. So, um, you know, we were considering budget as well, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think a lot of bands are starting to do this kind of method because budgets are getting smaller and I don't know, it also offers more creative control to the artist, I guess, which in some cases can be bad because I do see the advantage of working with like a sick, sick, like producer. Um, but you got to have the budget for that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we were, when we contacted other producers and they weren't willing to work with us, we pretty much were just like, okay, thanks for your time. You know, it wasn't really anything that we tried to like negotiate with them on. Cause like, I mean, why would we want to like have to negotiate with somebody, you know, if, you know, they don't, they don't want to do that from the get go. You know, why would we want to like talk them down from, from that ledge? You know, like we want to work with somebody who wants to work with us, you know, for their own reasons and with how we're already operating. We don't want to like have to bend someone's arm or anything like that. Yeah. And nor should you. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, I've noticed that it doesn't really lead to good results. No, absolutely not. No. When, when that happens. Yeah. So so yeah, well, Brody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and uh, you know, just good luck, bro. Hey, thanks, bro, <laughs> bro. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> well, no, no, for real though. Thank you for coming on and spending some time and talking through this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.